Uh, good morning. It is good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek this morning, and we're excited uh, that you're here. There's a lot of folks who are gone on vacation and traveling different places, and we're happy for them, but I'm happy to see you. I'm glad that you're here, and thank you for coming and worshiping with us today. If you brought your Bibles with you, and I hope that you did, would you please take them? Turn with me to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, if you've been along the ride with us now, or maybe this is your first time, we've been studying through the book of 1 John now for, uh, I think, eight or nine weeks, somewhere in there. And, uh, and it's been an exciting time. I've been, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, studying through this. And today, really, we come to about a halfway point in the book of 1 John, about midway through there. Not only because we've come about halfway through the material, though that is true, but because really, beginning today, we're going to see sort of a shift take place in the theme that John's going to, to carry out as he instructs us to the latter half of the book. The first half of the book, really, a lot of, a lot of scholars say kind of lined up around what John tells us in chapter 1, verse 5. In chapter 1, verse 5 of 1 John, John writes this. He says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so many scholars have come along come to the conclusion that really everything that John writes about in the first half of the book kind of centers around that whole theme of, of God being light. And that would make sense because since God is light, John has has really impressed upon us the need as his children that we have to walk in the light and not walk in darkness. It's why he, he told us as just we studied last week that we should be people who practice righteousness and not live lives of habitual and ongoing sin. It's because God is light. But as we will see, he sort of shifts his theme. Beginning in our passage today and, 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 and to the rest of this, of, of this letter. And to a different characteristic of God. As a matter of fact, we might be able to look at down in chapter 4 verse 7 and 8. John writes this. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God. For God is love. And so the, the last, the second half of the book of 1 John really centers around that thing, that God is love. The first half was God is light, and the second half is God is love. And, and as a result of the fact that God is love, John goes on to tell us is that as God's true children, our lives should be characterized, in fact must be characterized, by our love for one another, love for the brethren, as he says here. Now, in fact, I, I thought about this this week. I was watching a TV show. There was a man who was dressed in a, in a police officer's uniform. He came up to a, a door in an apartment building. He knocked on the door. And, and the guy on the inside came up to the door and he said, Who is it? And, 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 and the police officer on the outside said, Well, it's the police. Open up. And on the inside, the guy says, Well, how do I know it's the police? He says, Well, don't you see my uniform? He says, I, Anybody can wear a uniform. I want to see your badge. Well, you know, I got to thinking about that. In a very similar way, John is going to tell us today that our badge, our, our real mark of identification, the real proof of the fact that as God's children we are who we say we are will lie in the fact that we love like God loves, that we love one another. In fact, let's just read our text today. In 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, the Bible says this, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. 
For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, because by, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this day that has been set aside in our week where we come together corporately as a body of brothers and sisters in Christ who believe this word and have placed our faith in the God of this word and in the Christ to whom it reveals. And we come together today, Lord, asking for your Holy Spirit to unite our hearts together and to, to help us to understand the word that you ultimately have authored. And so, Father, as we do that today, I pray that you would help us to keep out all foreign thoughts and other things that may be clamoring for our attention today. And that for a little while we're able to gather around your word that you've authored to help us understand it. Allow your Holy Spirit to bring us into a place of being able to understand what the text means. And then I pray that you would also then apply it to our lives. Bring conviction into our lives to help us to see where we need to make some changes and things that should be different in how we respond and how we act in accordance with what you've revealed in your word. Allow it to be that which moves us and molds us into the image of your Son, Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I begin reading verse 10, some of your versions, you're looking at it and you're probably thinking to yourself, well, verse 10, in my version, is part of the previous paragraph, but that's where he started was with verse 10. And, and some of you are looking at it, if you're reading from the New King James, you'll see verse 10 actually starts the new paragraph. And, and so I don't want you to be confused by that. Verse 10 is a... Is a Kind of a difficult verse to figure out exactly what paragraph it belongs to. It, it, it truly, I read it last week as a part of the, the previous section because I believe verse 10 sort of sum, serves as a summary statement of everything that we studied from verses 4 through 9 of 1 John 3. And, and if you recall, the, the thing that, that we learned last week from that paragraph of study was that whoever willfully allows and accepts sin as a practice of their lives... John tells us that they must honestly examine themselves to see if they are truly a child of God and to see if they've truly been born again. And, and in the first half of verse 10, John sort of summarizes that because what he says there is says, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now he's already said back in, in, in chapter, uh, excuse me, back in verse 7 that he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he, that is Christ, is righteous. He'd already told us down in verse 8 that he who sins is of the devil. And so he's just summarizing what he's just told us in the first half of verse 10. But then he adds this phrase. I don't know if you noticed it last week when we were studying. He adds this phrase, Neither is he who does not love 
his brother. Now he tacks that on because that's what he's introducing. He's moving from the whole action of, of, of practicing righteousness and living a life that's apart from sin. Now he's going to give us a very specific way of understanding that. And he's going to talk about the fact that you can't say you're a child of God if you don't love your brother. And so really, that's exactly what we see. And so the first point that I want you to note on your outline this morning comes from, from an understanding of how this transitional verse introduces the text. And the first point that I want you to note this morning is this. The distinguishing mark that identifies one as a child of God or the devil is love for one another. Love for one another. Now let me just say, John is going to make this point again and again and again throughout the last half of his letter. He's already said some few things about love prior to this, but he's really going to focus on this as we continue to move on. And he's going to continue to reiterate. He's going to continue to revisit this theme. And the fact that that repetition and that reiteration, it serves a point for John to help him drive home his point of just how important love for one another, particularly love for one another within the community of Christ, how important that is. In fact, listen to the number of times that John says something about loving one another, loving the brethren. He, he, he broaches the subject first of the time back in chapter 2 as it related to walking in the light. And in 1 John 2 verse 10, he said, He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in it. He, he equates it to walking in the light, walking and being in fellowship with God when you love the brethren. In, in chapter 3, verse 11 that we just read, he says this, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In chapter 4, verse 7, he'll say this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. In, in, in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. In chapter 4, verse 21, he says, And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And then in 2 John, verse 5, he writes this, And now I plead with you, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now, as that verse makes clear in 2 John verse 5, and as our verse makes clear in 1 John 3, 11 this morning, John was not giving a new command. He was not telling them something that they had not ever been taught before. He was reiterating, in fact, I believe something that Jesus had said. And if you'll recall with me, Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room on the night before he was crucified, and he gathered them together, and he was pouring into their lives on that, the last hours that he had as a free man before he would be crucified on the cross. And as he looked his disciples in the eyes, he issued them this command in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, Jesus says, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Later on in that same evening, as Jesus continued to pour into his disciples' lives, he, he said these words, and John records them in John 15, verses 12 and 13. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And a couple of verses later, he says, this thing, these things I command you, that you love one another. So... When John writes what he writes here in 1 John, he's not telling them something new. He's not telling you and I anything new. 
He's going back to that which was old, that which had been established, that which had been the crux and the foundation of the fellowship that remained between brothers and sisters in Christ from the time when He left them and ascended into the, to the Father. John is telling that those who are Christians, those who are truly God's children, through their faith in Christ, they will love one another. In fact, as Karen Jobes has written in her commentary on this particular passage, she says, love is the hallmark characteristic of God's children who are walking in the light. In fact, John expands on that. Look down in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3 here. Notice, notice what he says. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love the brethren. And then he gives the other half of that. He who does not love his brother does what? Abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John makes it crystal clear that when we become Christians, what happens? We, we move from one location to another. We move out of darkness into light. We move out of death into life. He, he, he describes it as nothing less than a resurrection from the dead into life. It's a being born again. It's being brought to life out of spiritual death. And the badge, he says, that proves to others and to the world, as Jesus said, and the badge that proves to ourselves that we have been brought from death to life is do we love one another? Do we love the brethren? Hatred, on the other hand, reveals that we are not of God. Hatred, in fact, Jesus said the Sermon on the Mount that hating someone is the equivalent of murdering them. Whether or not you actually pull the trigger or end their life or not, Jesus says that murder is of the equivalent of, of, of excuse me, hatred is of the equivalent of murder. Why? Because in your heart, you want that person removed from your life. You want to be freed of them and done away with them. And Jesus says that's the same thing as murder. John says here, he equates it the same way that Jesus did. I, on Wednesday night in our Wednesday night Bible study, I, I humorously, but I, I actually mean it, told, told the, the group that was with me, I said, you know, if John were, were having to color a coloring book, he wouldn't need 64 colors. He just need two, black and white, because everything is black and white with him. You either love your brothers and sisters in Christ and prove that you are of, of God, you have been born again, You've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from spiritual death into spiritual life. You either, you either love them or you hate them and you prove that you're of your father the devil. There's no middle ground with John. He doesn't allow for there to be a third road. And so I repeat the first point again. What John tells us is that the distinguishing mark that identifies one as a child of God or the devil is love for one another. And to illustrate that point, to illustrate what he means, he gives us a negative example on which we can look. He tells us of someone that we can look at his life and it will demonstrate the, the, the dichotomy that he wants us to see. The example is negative not only, not only because it shows us what the opposite of loving our brother looks like, but it also shows us the truly ugly and the heinous outcome that comes 
from not loving our brother. Notice that John says that we're to love one another, and then in verse 12 he says, Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him, John asks. Well, he answers his own question. Because his works, that is Cain's works, were evil, and his brothers, that is Abel's works, were righteous. And what I find interesting is that in trying to explain and to help us understand how important it is to love our brothers and our sisters, he takes us back to the first family and to two brothers who were raised together. As a matter of fact, we know in Genesis chapter 3, that's where Adam and Eve sinned against God through their rebellion against what he had told them to do, and they were banished from the garden. And in chapter 4, the first verses, we begin to understand that that Eve conceived and she bore her first son. His name was Cain. And then immediately the Bible tells us that she bore a second son and his name was Abel. And the two of those boys were raised together. We know nothing about their childhood. We don't know anything about how well they got along. Nothing, all of that is something that we would be able to, to if we, we would be reading into the text. All we know is this, is when they became men, Cain became a tiller of the ground. He became one who worked the garden just like his father had done. He took on the same the same job, the same responsibilities that his dad had had. And Abel, when he became a grown man, he began to tend the flocks. He was one who looked after the sheep. And so we see the two differences in what their responsibilities were, but what happened was an occasion came for them to both bring an offering to the Lord. And when that occasion took place, we are then now being given privy to see what lurks beneath the surface of the lives of Adam and Eve's two sons. You see, what took place was is that when they brought their offerings to the Lord, the Lord accepted Abel's and respected his offering as he brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. The scripture tells us that God did not respect and did not accept Cain's offering. And many have questioned why. Why would God do that? Was he being capricious? Was he being, what, what would cause him to accept one and not the other? And many have even said that it boils down to the fact that Abel brought a blood sacrifice to the Lord. The text does not say that, however. What the text does say is this. It says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. In other words, he brought the choice. He brought the, the, the top grade of what he had to the Lord as his offering. But notice when the Bible, if you go back and read it in Genesis 4, it says this about Cain. It says that he only brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And it's interesting that there's a lack of superlatives used there to describe Cain's offering. It's as though the, the writer is just wanting us to understand that Cain was just going through the motions, doing what was required, but going no farther. Not, he was not really humble before the Lord, not really acknowledging that God had actually get, was the giver of every good and perfect gift. He was not, he was not going through a, an understanding that he was completely dependent upon God. And I believe that, that that should serve as a reminder to all of us, quite frankly. It tells us that God is not pleased with tokenism. God is not pleased with minimum effort. He's not honored, He's not praised when we give of ourselves to Him half-heartedly. To offer half-hearted worship and offerings to God is is to demonstrate that we are not truly worshiping and praising Him for who He truly is, the great God of heaven, the maker of everything seen and unseen, the one from whom all blessings flow. Nevertheless, this is how Cain approached God with his offering, and God rejected Cain. He rejected the offering. And, and when Cain saw that Abel 
had been accepted by God and had been received and that his offering was respected, the Bible tells us that, that Cain's countenance fell. He became angry. He became angry with God. He became angry with his brother. Why? Well, because he was jealous. He was envious of the righteousness of his brother. And so what did Cain do? Well, the Lord confronted Cain. He came to him and he says, why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will, will things not go well with you? But Cain, Cain refused to repent. And instead, he invited his brother out to the field, the very same fields that he tilled. And the Bible says that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And here, just one chapter removed from the first sin of rebellion, we find the first murder taking place. And it was not just any kind of murder. It was fratricide. It was the murder of one brother of another based in anger that resulted from jealousy and envy. And that sad story goes on to tell us that after he murdered his brother, Cain was approached this time by God who asked where Abel was. And Cain responded, I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? And here we see not only was Cain a murderer, he was a liar as well. And that's significant because as we studied last week, when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 44, what did he say to them? He said, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So based upon Jesus' words, we can recognize that by his actions, Cain demonstrated who his true spiritual father was. And here in our passage, John tells us that Cain was of the wicked one. And then he uses him as an example of the world, as an example of those who are not children of God, but are rather children of the devil. As John Stott has written in his commentary on this, on this passage, he said, Cain was the prototype of the world, and the world is Cain's posterity. In other words, those who hate their brothers... And we realize that hatred in God's eyes is, is equivalent of murder, as we've already said, even if it doesn't result in the physical act of murder. Such ones who engage in and allow such emotions of bitterness and anger and jealousy to continue to fester in their lives till it comes to the point of, of hatred of one another gives evidence that their lives are not truly, have never truly been brought from death to life. That leads me to the second point that I want you to see this morning. The second point is this. Like Cain, the child of the devil gives evidence of his or her spiritual death through their self-centered hatred and murder of others. Now, why do I say self-centered? Well, the story of Cain and his sin really shouts out to us about his self-centeredness. Consider this, his, his concern was more centered on himself than on God when he gave his offering to begin with. Then later he was more centered on himself than he was God when, when God came to him and offered him an opportunity to repent. And then he was more centered upon himself than he was his own brother 
when he decided in his heart to kill him. And in fact, that whole story is one of self-centeredness that moves then to hatred, and then that hatred moves to murder. And John says, that is the way of the world. That's the same way that the world responds to Christians. He says in verse 13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. You see, the world responds to Christians in that way, particularly when it sees Christians who practice their righteousness. How often do we see that happening in our world today? Christians reach out to their family, to their friends, to their neighbors, and they share the love of Christ with them. And what response often are they met with? Something along the lines of this, don't, I don't want to talk to you. Don't talk to me about sin. Don't talk to me about me needing a Savior. One who died for me. What's that about? Don't, don't judge me. Don't tell me there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. That's up for me to decide, not, not for some ancient scriptures to determine. Don't, don't tell me that there's only one way to heaven. Don't tell me there's only one way to be saved. These are typical of the responses that often we find in our world today when we attempt to try to talk to folks about the good news of the gospel. And often, very, the lo very loving act of sharing the good news of the gospel with, with others is met with antagonistic resistance. And I believe that in our world today, to hold to and to practice the teachings of Jesus in the Scriptures actually puts a bullseye on our backs as Christians. It ultimately makes us targets of rejection and contempt and hatred, and yes, as we've even seen in other parts of the world and may very well see here, that it can even lead to murder. But John says we should not be surprised when that happens. Why? Well, because the world is acting just like Cain did and just like Cain's spiritual father did. Those who are not Christians and do not have faith in Christ do not believe in the gospel, nor do they want to hear a message about God's grace or His righteous judgment. It's no different in Jesus' day. Jesus said in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. John echoes what Jesus says. He says, don't, don't be surprised, my brothers. Don't marvel at the fact that the world hates you. We should expect the world to hate us. Why? Because they're behaving like their father, the devil. And that really is the point that John wants to make. He wants to throw that as a negative example for us to look at because it's, the, it's this point, the self-centered life that is self-consumed will ultimately end up embracing hatred of others and will practice, instead of practicing righteousness. And that hatred will, end, will ultimately end in murder, whether it's we actually pull the trigger on someone or we just wish they would be gone and out of our lives. Such an attitude proves that such a one continues to reside outside the light. They continue to reside in darkness and they remain spiritually dead. Brothers and sisters, that should never be the case for the child of God. It cannot be the case for the child of God. In fact, John says that, that it cannot be so. Why? Because if we have passed from death to life, then we will love the brethren. We will love our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
As one even told me, we were talking about it at the, at the end of this service this morning, when Jesus says, this is how the, you will know, that that's how the world will know you're my disciples. How? Because they'll see the love that's being sh shared between my, 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 my people, my disciples. They will love one another. It will stand as a testimony to the outside world looking in. This is how we know that they belong to Christ. What does it mean to love? Well, I doubt there are very many words that are more misunderstood and misinterpreted in our language than that word. Oftentimes the word love is thrown around with such reckless abandon. It's used in such ways it's a far cry from the way that Jesus used it. It's a far cry from the way that the scriptures talk about it. In fact, I. Howard Marshall has written in his commentary on this passage, he says, love can have a variety of meanings and it therefore is necessary to know exactly what one means by it. He has most people associate Christianity with the command to love and so they think that they know all about Christianity when they have understood its teaching in terms of their own concept of love but the fact of the matter is we have to understand what the Bible's concept of love is that's what determines who we are as Christians John draws a circle around it for us he narrows the focus down of love in the direct way that he's discussing it here and he gives us something that's, that allows us to tangibly see what love looks like because see, he's pointed us to the negative example of Cain. And he showed us how all that begins to work out. But now he points us to another example. And he points us in verse 16, he says this, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. As I said, John is obviously pointing us to Christ in this verse. And I believe he's echoing Exactly what Jesus said, that this is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. John is obviously using the same vocabulary, the same sentence structure when he, when he does this, and he's defining love in its true essence. And what is the true essence of love, according to what John tells us here? Self-sacrifice. Being willing to lay down your life for another. What John showed us through the negative example of Cain is that hate is negative and it seeks the other person's harm. And it ultimately leads to activity that is designed to, to bring about that harm and even, even to the point of murder. But in Christ, we see just the opposite. We, we see the positive example. We see love, the kind of love that, that seeks the other person's good and ultimately leads to activity designed to bring about that good even to and all the way to the point of self-sacrifice. What did we sing about this morning? The love of God displayed toward us in what way? That He died for us, the shedding of His blood. We've sung songs this morning that just declare who He is and what He has done for us and the love that He has for us. And John says that we who are children of God, we too ought to lay down our lives self-sacrificially, if necessary, for the brethren. The essence of, of true love is self-sacrifice. And John says that we who have benefited from Christ's love for us by our faith in Him, we, rather than demonstrating hate toward our brothers and sisters, must instead demonstrate the same type of love that Jesus demonstrated. And that leads me to the third point that I want you to see this morning. Third point is this. Like Christ... The child of God gives evidence of his or her spiritual life through their self-sacrificial love 
of others. Because Christ gave His life for us, He serves as our pattern, our model. And it's therefore that which serves as proof that we belong to Him as if we love the same way. Some have noted how enthusiastically many Christians embrace this. To quote Marshall again, he says that readiness to lay down one's life is a high ideal to which we may enthusiastically consent. After all, he says, it is a fairly remote possibility. And if it did arise, we could probably make the supreme effort that would be required. But as John Stott has written, as Christians, what is more often the case is we have a different opportunity to display self-sacrificial love that doesn't necessarily come in the way of laying down our lives for others in the physical sense that we give up our lives for them. Rather, as John Stott has put it, we constantly as Christians have the much more prosaic or routine opportunity to share our possessions with those in need. And then he points this out. The sad fact is that oftentimes our zeal wanes and diminishes in the face of that reality. As another has written, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, and otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in a general way may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And this is where it all really hits home with us. Because I don't know about you, I know people who I would define to be uninteresting and exasperating and depraved and otherwise unattractive. And most of the time it's me. But in a church family, a body of believers, are there not those that bubble up and we think to ourselves, man, I just can't stand being around them. I wish that they weren't even around. What John is saying, that's not the way to do that. Because when those very people, sometimes are the ones who need our love the most, and sometimes it comes into a very real way because we find them, they are in need. And this is what John says. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed, in action, and in truth. James echoed the same thing. If you'll recall, James chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, he says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? He basically says such kind of faith is of no good. It's of no value. Because it's, it, it, it's divorced from actions that support it. Brothers and sisters, as it pertains to loving one another, the rubber meets the road right here. Christian love is love which is willing to give self-sacrificially to those in need. Actions speak louder than words, don't they? We've heard that all of our lives. What John is basically saying right here is that love is essentially neither sentiment nor talk. It is actions. Jesus said the same thing. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. Unlike the world who follows the example of Cain 
and his father, the devil, by giving evidence of spiritual death through hatred and murder. True children of God follow the example of Christ by loving others self-sacrificially, thereby giving evidence of eternal life. I really like how Greg Allen has put it. He says, the world will never really know that we are Christians by our church building or by our correct doctrine or by our cleaned up lives. As important as those things may be, they are not the real proof and not where the real proof lies. As Jesus says, they will know we are Christians by our love. And we must love one another. Friends, let me tell you, correct doctrine and correct theology is absolutely important. It's important that we understand God's Word and that we study it so that we can truly come to a complete understanding of it. It's absolutely necessary, but friend, that will always issue forth into a life that has been changed as a result of the truth of God's Word. And Jesus says the outward manifestation of that. John says the outward manifestation of that is our love for one another that serves as a beacon, as a light to the lost world around us. The harsh reality is, and that is the same time wonderful proof of who we are in Christ, is that the world will not treat us the same way. They will not treat us with love and kindness. In fact, just the opposite will be the case. We should come to expect it. Nevertheless, because we have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus that we've sung about this morning, because we've been brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, our lives and our actions must not mimic that of the world and of the world's spiritual father, the devil. Instead, our lives must emulate Christ's life who was willing to lovingly tell people the truth and then to lay down his life so that you and I and all who will trust in him might be saved. Self-sacrificial love is the proof that we are Christians. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.